love what you been missing. Get your ladies up to date Don't mind working for mine. Got a hand up, got a hand up. The press warm to the touch. I was born in Michigan, just across the lake in Lansing, never raised there. I went to every state in the United States. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. I moved here when I was 15, back in the 80s. I finished high school here in 86. And I'm Tom. I'm the mayor of the bridge. I've been out here on and off since I was 14. I'm 62. I want housing like everyone else. City promised us housing. Give it to us. About two years ago, a homeless encampment appeared in the park one block away from my childhood home. Tui Park Tent City, as it was often referred to, would eventually grow to fill much of the grassy area of namesake Tui Park. The park is located in the Chicago neighborhood of Rogers Park, which, to be clear, is a neighborhood and not a park. It's the city's northmost point, where Chicago merges with the suburb of Evanston. Growing up, the fun fact that locals love to glowingly tell visitors is that you could hear more than 80 languages spoken in the community. Idyllic, diverse, right on the lake. The other half of the truth is that it's far away from everything, making it one of the last bastions of pseudo-affordability on the north side of a famously divided city. The homeless encampment seems to have truly taken root about a year into existing, sometime between summer and fall of 2022. People in need of housing had been setting up tents in the park since the previous summer, according to the ward's alder person, Maria Haddon, whose staff did what they could to connect people with housing services. Their efforts, perhaps in combination with the looming cold of Chicago winter, kept the number small at first. In the spring of 2022, there were nine tents in the park down to four by early summer. But as the weather warmed and pandemic eviction moratoriums melted away, the population quickly exploded to 41 tents by September. A few small news outlets were covering the camp, which is how I first heard about it from pandemic quarantine. Now more and more Chicago media was taking an interest. You're on. We are right here in uh, Toomey Park, uh, in Rogers Park, uh, and... Uh... The Loyola Phoenix newspaper interviewed a resident of Tent City named Matthew G, who'd been evicted from his condo on a street a few blocks away. The previous November, his roommate died of kidney cancer. It was a shock to Matthew, who had no idea how serious his roommate's condition had really been. For the past six months, Matthew and his fiance had been living together in a tent in the park. He told the paper the camp had been, quote, blowing up over the past few weeks. At that point, Alderperson Haddon's office had already helped find housing for 64 people from Tent City. More people were coming, and clearly faster than ever. Another Tent City resident, Lincoln, told the newspaper that the reason that people kept coming to Tent City was because the new Alderperson didn't treat them like, quote, animals. Meanwhile, an increasingly vocal segment of the community wanted Tent City gone. How, how long have you been here in Tui Park? Ooh, too long. Uh, about six months. Six months. Trudy Leong, station manager at community radio station WZRD, posted a number of interviews with residents of Tent City, including this one with a man named Anthony. Some of them can't stand us. You know, 
a, a few of them, you know, and they let it be known they can't stand us because they curse, curse at us, you know, talk about us, you know, and it is what it is, you know. Can't help it. You know, we got to stay somewhere. It's almost like having an internally displaced people, you know, like uh, like an internal refugee crisis, you know, um, in some ways. If you look at it from that respect, like people who flee places because of economic hardship or violence, you know, and seek to live somewhere else. I mean, that's what's happening in America, right? Aaron Ryan, Senior Vice President of the Knight Ministry, one of Chicago's leading providers of homeless services. We recorded this interview back at the beginning of this project in November of 2022. At the time, Aaron was serving as interim president and CEO. It happens with young people all the time, you know, who leave the South because they've come out as LGBTQ and are shunned and have no resources. And so they come to the Northern cities where there's more welcoming atmosphere and more services. So it's, if we look at it like that, I think it reframes the question completely. And now we have people arriving on buses, right? From the Southern border um, as well in the mix. So, um, you know, the, the question of who's responsible <laughs> um, is a community question, right? Communities are responsible for taking care of each other. And so when people have not been able to find that, then they create their own communities. From Rivet and Streetwise, I'm Jesse Batend, and this is Where I Stay, season two. Episode one, the mayor of both bridges. I've been answering media questions for 22 years now. Part one, welcome to the 51st Ward. Every winter, it's getting cold. Why are there some people who won't go inside? Some people just want to live outside. While encampments and street homelessness are the most visible, Chicago has a huge population of additional people experiencing some form of housing insecurity. Activist Carla Johnson with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless described it to local public radio station WBEZ. The homeless crisis that we have in Chicago with 65,000 people already homeless, men, women, and children, it's equal to a whole separate ward. We have 50 wards in Chicago, but this ward we call the 51st Ward. Wow. An entire ward's worth of possibly unseen, possibly ignored constituents who, depending on which slice of governmental pie you ask, might not even be considered homeless? I kind of think that we need to examine the phenomenon of encampments as a response to the inadequate shelter system. And I think that encampments have actually filled a gap in our service system that we providers have not been able to fill for 30, 40 years of aggressive trying to solve the problem of homelessness, of modern homelessness, right? So we have a lot to learn from encampments, actually, to figure out how to incorporate what homeless people have learned, you know, into a systemic response, because encampments are homeless people solving for themselves. I wanted to find out more about the problems encampments were supposedly solving, but who to ask? As it happens, some members of the 51st Ward have their own elected officials. We're officially recording, so whenever you're ready, Alan. Okay. Um, Hi. 
Yes, uh, I'm A. Allen, uh, a vendor supervisor for Streetwise, and we're here with uh, uh, Tom Gordon, alias known as the mayor. A few miles south of Tui Park, on the lakefront, nestled under the overpass of Chicago's famous Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable Lakeshore Drive, Uptown Tent City has been running with only a few interruptions since 2015. Unlike the encampment in Tui Park, Uptown Tent City predates the pandemic. And Streetwise editor Suzanne Haney told me that during the encampment's early days, there was a resident that reporters liked to quote. His name was Tom Gordon, but everybody referred to him as the mayor. What exactly the mayor of an encampment did was a little unclear. In fact, all we really knew about Tom was that he'd lived in Uptown Tent City for a number of years until he finally got housing. I was born in Michigan. I was able to find this documentary that was produced by a group of students who visited Uptown Tent City about five years ago. And I'm Tom. I'm the mayor of the bridge. Unfortunately, it ended like this. Tom's whereabouts are still unknown to us. The truth is, Tom never really disappeared. In fact, he still lived in the area. After messaging multiple Tom Gordons on Facebook, we finally got a response. But before we meet Tom the mayor, I need to introduce you to a couple of my collaborators. That's right, new season, new team. And for this episode, I've got not one, but two co-hosts. The first is Streetwise Magazine editor, Suzanne Haney. She's covered homelessness in Chicago for 28 years and was my direct partner in reporting this story. Suzanne, when did you start working at Streetwise? I started as a volunteer in 1995. I was uh, five years old at the time. God, that's depressing. <laughs> the other is Mr. Allen, a Streetwise magazine vendor who actually spent a few years living in a homeless encampment in Miami Beach. In Florida, everybody lives on the beach. I guess you would call that a beach bum, okay? I guess you would call it that because that's what we actually was, beach bums, right? Today, Alan sells Streetwise magazine and also works as a supervisor, helping new vendors get started. He occasionally writes for the magazine under the byline A. Allen. Suzanne is his editor. Alan's personal story makes him sound a little bit like a man out of time. The last of a generation that saw trains as an opportunity to live a different kind of life. Suzanne once described him by comparing him to the point of view character in Roger Miller's country classic, King of the Road. No phone, no pool, no pets. Ain't got no cigarettes. Alan grew up on Chicago's South Side. As a young man, he got fired from his job, and instead of looking for a new one, he took $179 he'd saved up, bought a three-stop Amtrak ticket, King of the and left to see the United States. I left Chicago after I lost my job, and I set out to travel. First stop, New York, which he'd always wanted to visit. Then Washington to see the White House. Eventually, the destinations were piling up. The Bahamas, Jamaica, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, because I worked on a ship. I set out to go to places where I didn't know nobody. It was a great adventure for me. By the time Alan made it all the way to Canada, the limited funds he started with were running dangerously low. But he was hardly phased. It was like, it was like uh, one of my dreams come true to be able to travel and explore. It turned out that Canada was an excellent place to have almost no money. Montreal had drop-in shelters where you could crash for the night, and strip clubs with $1 minimums. King of the road. 
open until late into the night. It put a little excitement in my adventure, you know, to be able to stay in Canada in a shelter and still kind of explore. The end of the road for Alan was Florida. That's where I became homeless. My money had ran out. I had picked up my last check and everything. I was looking for another apartment. I couldn't find another apartment. Then between, between then and looking for another apartment, I discovered cocaine, okay? I discovered cocaine, so, you know, that, was a, that, was, that became a problem for me because the money that I did have for rent, I started spending it on drugs. And, and then I got connected with the, uh, with the homeless society. Okay, and you know, all of them was doing drugs, and it was like, you know, it's not that bad, you know, if you if you be homeless in uh, Miami, Florida, because the weather is good, we all sleep outside, you know, and they kind of convinced me and my girl, I had a girlfriend, they kind of convinced me and my girlfriend that it was okay to go ahead and buy some drugs and, and to uh, be homeless, you know. They have like what we call tent city, you know, that's where everybody have a tent. But in Florida, everybody lives on the beach. I guess you would call that a beach bomb. And being a beach bomb, all the beach bombs looked out for each other. And so it made it like a safe place, made it like a, uh, made it like a society or, you know, it's a family, it was a family like, right? On the way to Uptown to meet Tom, Alan had questions about this mayor guy. He'd met his fair share of encampment members in Miami who felt entitled to power or claimed to speak for others. So when we arrived at the park bench in Chicago's uptown neighborhood and were greeted by a small, gray-bearded man in a windbreaker and Yankees ball cap, Alan's first question was, okay, who exactly made you mayor? That's you. So how did you become known as the mayor of uptown Tent City? In 2016 and 17, when I came down here, the people under both bridges, Wilson and Lawrence, had an election. They voted me in as the mayor down here. I doing my job. <laughs> so obviously, they voted you in as the mayor because of your experience. I have one question to ask you. How did you, a first time, become homeless? Oh, that goes way back. Well, yeah, it, it started back in the late 60s, early 70s. My uh, dad was out of work. He had to travel and go to different places to get work. My mom, since we had no place to go, we went to churches. Stayed at the churches, shelter. At least we weren't on the street. Seven kids don't, don't need to be on the street. Ever since then, I've been fighting homeless. I fight for everybody. Anyone that wants housing has a right to it. Housing is a human right. So if you want it, let's get it. I see why they voted you as president. You know, you, you have the resume. Tom's 64 years old and actually rather soft-spoken. He doesn't have a particularly forceful nature or stature. These days, he's got a bit of a hunch. Tom says his spine is totally messed up the result of a workplace injury he suffered, ironically, working construction. Yeah, I used to work on houses. <laughs> you used to wow, work? really? So what was your job? I, I started out building houses, then I went into repairing houses, then I went into rehabbing houses, burnt out houses, turned them into brand new homes, yeah. 
I can do anything with a house I can do. <laughs> but Tom talks with conviction, and his eyes back him up. They're probing, constantly taking our measure throughout the interview with a certain calm authority. I notice he meets Alan's gaze with each question, holding eye contact as the two men feel each other out. Tell me this, are you still homeless or? Oh no, I have a one bedroom apartment okay. in Tui. Okay, so if you're not homeless now, why do you continue to uh, fight for homeless people? Because that's what I do. That's what you do? Uh, there's no reason for anyone to freeze out here. We got a nasty winter coming this year. So I want to make sure people get heat heaters and propane gas. You still have a compassion for homeless people even though you do have housing now. Yeah. That's good. Where do you think you developed that at? I don't know. <laughs> Over the years, you develop a lot. Tom's injury, six herniated discs, cost him his livelihood and also his mobility. He went on disability, but struggled to get by. Around 2016, he came to Uptown to set up a tent. He'd heard about the new community under the bridges and was eager to get involved. Question. Sure. Going back to the the story of the election, what did that look like? I wasn't here. Oh, I really? wasn't here. It was on a it was on a Sunday. I went to church. When I came back from church, everybody told me I was the mayor. Ah, so I was like, okay. Think? I thought they were joking. <laughs> but what had you done up to that point that made yeah, you well, stand out as a leader? Why did people choose you? It's got to be what I was doing. What were you doing? I'd make sure everybody got what they needed. When donors came out, people took what they want. The majority of the stuff that you need to survive in the wintertime was going in the garbage. Like what? Blankets, pillows, stuff that keep you warm, jackets. I set up storage tents down there. We had all that stuff when winter came. Heaters, propane gas, everything. I guess that's why they made me the mayor. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like you you was more of an organizer too. Well, that too. Yes. Yeah, organizer. You set up tents for for like supply tents. Yep. Yeah. So that was a great thing. And are do most tent cities have a mayor, or was this something yeah. that's kind of yeah. unique? There are Roosevelt and the Plains used to have a mayor. I don't know that if they still do. Sure. I mean, but there's a lot of things that happen, too. Did you take that as an honor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Alan asked Tom what he thought about Aaron's suggestion, that the rise of tent encampments was a response to shortcomings in the shelter system. Do you agree with that? Yeah, because a lot of people won't go to shelters. You couldn't stick me in a shelter. Why? I won't go. I will not stay in a shelter. I think a lot of people have you know, who've never experienced homelessness have a hard time understanding why that would be. Um, can you give us kind of a sense? Well, like this. Some shelters, some shelters have bed bugs. People don't want to deal with bed bugs. Roaches. All that stuff. Some shelters, people steal from you. I have a problem if someone steals from me. <laughs> so, I won't go to a shelter. The one shelter they got you have to, in order to stay there, you got to go and join their religion. Okay. I got my own religion. I don't need to join yours. That doesn't make sense. So that means I have to join your religion 
they have a bed to sleep. No. Tom's referring to Pacific Garden Mission, which happens to be Chicago's largest private shelter with around 2,000 beds. In the early days of the encampment, Tom says he and many of the other members were repeatedly offered beds at Pacific Garden Mission's shelter, about seven miles away in the heart of Chicago's loop. They refused. In fact, a number of founding members of Tent City had specifically left Pacific Garden Mission or Salvation Army shelters to live under the bridges. A lot of shelters and homeless support services in Chicago are religious institutions. They're by no means the only options in the city, but likely because of its size, Tom says Pacific Garden Mission was the shelter where he and other residents were most consistently offered beds. Pacific Garden Mission describes itself as a gospel rescue mission whose programs are intended to prepare homeless individuals to become, quote, fully functioning followers of Christ. In order to stay at the mission, would-be residents were required to attend mandatory worship services. There's also a long list of strict rules. Same-sex relationships are not allowed. Similarly, many tent city residents throughout the years have been unmarried couples who would not be allowed to share a shelter bed. Another thing that keeps a lot of people out of shelters is that you have couples out here who are not married. And if you are not married, they will not put you in the shelter together. They will separate you. Ali Simmons is an outreach worker with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, an advocacy group that's worked with residents at Tui Park and Uptown. The rules about when folks have to get up and leave the shelter and when they are able to come back in, a lot of shelters, if not all, that require folks to leave for a certain amount of time throughout the day, and then they can't come back in until nighttime. You have women out here who have elected to put their children up somewhere else because they're experiencing homelessness and didn't want to go to a shelter because they felt their shelters was unsafe for them and their family. I've encountered people who said that they were raped in shelters. The, the list goes on and on. Ali says that sometimes families are broken up in other ways. Because many shelters are segregated by gender, there are situations where children over a certain age might be separated from a single parent of the opposite gender. In some instances, yes, they will separate uh, older family members. He can't stay in the same space or the same area with his mother, or there have been times when I've came across issues like that as well. Some of Uptown Tent City's most memorable residents came there knowing that shelters would turn them away from a 2018 University of Chicago research project on Tent City by Mark Joshua. Quote, Carol, a former resident of both the Wilson and Lawrence Viaducts, who was featured extensively in the columns of the Chicago Sun-Times, chose to live in the encampment rather than be turned away for her handicap. Carol uses a large electric wheelchair and does everything with her two dogs, Chiefy and Bella. Her handicap alone might have stopped her from gaining access to a shelter bed. Pacific Garden Mission requires that its residents be ambulatory, able to shower and physically move throughout the building without assistance. That never came into question, however, because Carol knew right from the start that no shelter would accept her dogs, and there was no way she was leaving them behind. Carol left her apartment and moved directly to the Lawrence Viaduct. One encampment member told a reporter that they wanted the freedom to use drugs in bed. A couple had active warrants. Well, one of my questions is, what do the encampment offer that shelters do not? Hey, we're family out here. <laughs> Everybody out here is family, one way or the other. And we treat each other the same way. Yeah, we have our ups and downs, we fight, but that happens in all families. 
How do you handle how how do you handle conflicts when they do occur? Depends on the situation. It depends if we need to call the police or something, then we do it. What happens when someone don't want to follow the encampment rules? Bye bye. <laughs> I mean, we don't allow stealing down there. We don't allow fires down there. The last guy that set a fire down there, we kicked him out. We can't have that. If you get caught stealing, if I catch you stealing, you got to leave the camp. If they catch you stealing, they're going to beat you up and drag you out of the camp. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if all camps are like that. I just know that's how uptown is. That sounds good, man. You you seem like you're a great mayor from from your experience and, and then from your fairness, you know. This is what is needed regardless of where you go. The main thing I do is get the caseworkers down here. I bring the caseworkers down. They give you a housing assessment. Within three months, you're out of here. They put you in, in, either in a shelter or in some kind of temporary housing for about three three to six months, and then you'll get your regular housing. So, yeah. So people are getting housing. Yes. Great. So what are the challenges to getting people housing? What does that look like? I mean, we've heard talk about, oh, they miss their appointment, they lose their phone, they don't talk to their social worker, they don't follow up. Tell us the real world. What happens is, caseworkers I bring out here, it doesn't matter you got a phone or not. I got a phone. I got two phones. I can get the caseworkers down here. If you got an appointment and you can't make that appointment, come to me ahead of time. I'll get that caseworker down here. You got no transportation. Okay, I'll get the caseworker down here. You want your housing that bad? I'll work with you. I'll get the caseworker down here. <laughs> Navigating Chicago's wait lists and housing services to match a person with an agreeable situation is a time-consuming process. Sometimes people are missing important paperwork. Often it takes at least a few months. Joining Tent City, on the other hand, is simple. Ask me if they can get a tent in a spot. Really? If I got a spot, I'll give you a spot. If I got a tent, I'll give you a tent. Some people just come down and ask for a one-man tent. They don't want to stay here. They want to go downtown or something. Yeah, I got a one-man tent for you. I'll give them to you. Those are only used for down people downtown. Because certain places that they set up down there, they set up at night. In the morning when they get up, they pack everything up, put it in their bag, and off they go. If, if they had the alternative, trust me, they would go to a shelter that they felt was right for them. But because those don't exist, then the only alternative for them in their eyes is to, you know, do what they feel is best for themselves. So while camping under the bridges seemed like the best choice to the founders of Uptown Tent City, living there permanently wasn't their intention. One common chant at the many protests and media battles that followed went, give us a home or leave us alone. In 2021, Tom led a group carrying a symbolic coffin, representing the homeless who'd frozen that winter. They marched in front of the offices of the Chicago Housing Authority. Someone had a sign bearing the names of those who'd passed. Good. I'm 
been out here on and off since I was 14. I'm 62. I want housing like everyone else. City promised us housing. Give it to us. It's possible that Tom's intent in joining the camp was expressly political. Supposedly, Tom's involvement with a local advocacy group is how he first heard about Tent City. In the 2018 University of Chicago research paper entitled, This is Sanctuary Land, Chicago's Homeless Shelters and Uptown Tent City, Tom claimed that he moved to Tent City after an advocacy group, Northside Action for Justice, asked him to help. Though he's been known to give different reasons for his move, political action was always at the center of his leadership at Tent City. In fact, the paper argues, from the very beginning, Uptown Tent City's existence was intimately tied to political activism. For years, I see people die out here. For years, I see you tear the homeless community parts apart. No reason for it. You say there's no money. You're full of it. We know you got it. We know you got housing. We know you got flat land out there that you can build on. The camp is spread between two city blocks, under the highway overpasses at both Lawrence and Wilson Street. Besides rows of tents on either side, there are often a few small grills, personal heaters, used propane tanks, and for years, Carol's dogs, Chiefy and Bella, who would take turns sleeping with their head outside the tent flat, keeping watch throughout the night. On my last visit, the words, most are one paycheck away from homelessness, were tagged across one wall in squiggly black spray paint. The tents themselves popped up sometime in 2015, about a year before Tom showed up, immediately kicking off what the UChicago paper describes as a tenuous relationship with the city of Chicago. I, I think the only reason there's a basic level of tolerance there is because the coalition has sued them. Otherwise, I think the city is pretty, I don't know, <laughs> is pretty intolerant. A lot has changed since we recorded this interview with Aaron back in November 2022. Since publishing this podcast, Aaron actually contacted us to make it clear that while she stands by her description of the relationship between the city and houseless communities in a historical sense, her comments aren't directed at the city's efforts in 2024. During the pandemic, the city adopted a policy not to displace people living in parks or public areas. Shelter capacity had been slashed in order to try to manage social distancing. Since then, a lot of these changes have actually carried over, at times despite a lot of community pushback. That being said, until quite recently, the relationship was essentially an extended political and legal battle. The first clash came shortly after the first tents arrived. It was summer 2015, before Tom was living under, much less mayor, of the bridges. Uptown's grassy lakefront was intended to be the location of a Mumford & Sons concert. The city was expecting a huge crowd of 35,000 people and wanted the bridges cleared. Police broke up the camp, and that night, the sounds of Little Lion Man rang across Lake Michigan the city's lights dancing across its peaceful sway. 
In response, the group Ali works for, the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, accused the city of violating the residents' state constitutional rights by displacing them and confiscating their belongings. The coalition had experience suing the city. In 2013, then-Governor Pat Quinn had signed the Illinois Bill of Rights for the Homeless Act. According to the coalition's website, Illinois is the second state in the nation to guarantee particular civil liberties to those experiencing homelessness. The Bill of Rights includes, among other protections, a right to be free from discrimination by state and municipal agencies. It also protects the right to privacy in one's possessions to the same extent as in a private residence. So in Illinois, once a tent's set up, it might as well be a house when it comes to protections against searches and seizures. That same year that the bill HBOR was signed into law, CCH attorneys and legal interns began outreach around street sweeps, a regular practice across Chicago where city workers would, without notice, confiscate and throw out the property of homeless people. Sweeps regularly occurred on Lower Wacker Drive and under the Wilson Viaducts in Uptown, often early in the morning. The coalition argued in court that the police and sanitation workers used the sweeps and threat of arrest as a method of dispersing and intimidating people living on the street. So basically what happened there was an individual was subjected to a clean and they threw all this stuff away. And someone there gave him the card of a former attorney who was working with us, Diane O'Connell. And he reached out to Diane O'Connell, explained to her what happened and that pretty much started the representation there. The resulting case, Bryant versus the city of Chicago, concluded in a settlement with the city and creation of a new street cleaning policy enacted January 2015. Right from the beginning, the coalition was watching Tent City, often literally in the form of legal observers. How, how tell me this, how, how are you working with the city? You like the mediator, how are you working with the city on behalf of the homeless? I make sure the city doesn't get rid of their stuff. They have a cleaning. If I can't make it to the cleaning, like this morning, I couldn't make it down here. I had people down here, eyes and ears and cameras. Wow. You ain't throwing nothing away. If you do, I'm going to call. I'll, I'll call the coalition. I'll call the main people I need to call. And you'll have them on film. In accordance with the settlement, streets and sanitation began weekly cleanings that required the entire community to move their belongings out from under the bridge every Friday at 7 a.m. So you said there was a cleaning this morning. What happened? Everything went fine. They just came down and cleaned up the garbage. That's all they did. That was good. We want to make sure they don't throw nobody's personal stuff out. If the town is abandoned, we have a right to take that tent before the park or the city does. According to Mark Joshua, when these cleanings continued into the winter, over 40 residents of Tent City refused to comply. According to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, residents invited advocates and members of the media to be witness to their refusal. They leveraged that visibility to force a meeting with officials where they declared that they would not agree to washings if the temperature was below 40 degrees or if it was raining. In doing this, they asserted their rights to exist in the space under the viaducts. More importantly, they positioned themselves as political actors with the power to negotiate with city officials and forced the city in the form of streets and sanitation to recognize their ownership over the viaducts, at least in part. Coalition lawyer Arturo Hernandez. People are still not like lawfully allowed to sleep overnight at a park and the park just does not recognize that as a right they have. So that's one thing I will point out. How in practice, they 
generally it was like you know a few people are asleep in the park they generally don't really enforce that however like officially it's still not something that they recognize as lawful okay so there is some amount of um they're allowing each other to sort of exist without pushing the issue like if they really needed to move people out of an encampment or really wanted to move someone out of an encampment, would they have a legal justification to say, okay, it's 11 o'clock, tents out? Yes. They, if, if somebody is staying at a park past closing time when the park is no longer uh, open, they would have grounds to uh, enforce the law. Understood. And they don't have a legal right to stay there uh, past uh, closing hours. So that is something that they could do lawfully. Even with the coalition on speed dial, the camp was extremely vulnerable to police presence. All an officer had to do was wait around long enough for a shelter resident to use the restroom and they could be ticketed for public urination. Residents had set up a designated area cordoned off by trash cans to serve as a restroom. But obscured or not, that didn't stop Tom from getting a $600 ticket one time from a police officer that he says caught him mid-go. I know Kaepernick was the one over this war. Was he fiercely against the tent city or, or what? What's uh, going on? He was on? always against the tent city down here. He was the one that would send his goons down here all the time. Tom and his advocates already felt streets and sanitation's disruptive power washing was meant to harass the tent city residents into leaving. And they knew unsanitary conditions gave the city an excuse to send in crews. So in response, they developed a series of vigilant rules. The community anticipated police's reaction, trying to see the world through the government's eyes. Tent city leaders managed and policed the space under the bridges using the police's presumed criteria. This type of, quote, pre-policing translated into rigorous control of tent city's appearance, what one resident called avoiding bad PR. It began with communal efforts to keep the viaducts clean through the creation of janitor and sanatorial details, and then communal cleanups, explicitly aimed at projecting a sanitized image of their space to the outside world. There was one big logistical problem. The camp was split between the two bridges, and Tom could only ever be in one place at a time. Okay. Were you mayor of Wilson or of Lawrence? Both. 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 Both bridges. Okay. I'm the mayor of Uptown. <laughs> okay, because initially there were two mayors, weren't there? No, Abdul was never the mayor. Abdul was the president. Abdul also voted me in as mayor. Okay. If Tom was the elected mayor of Tent City, the president, Abdul, was his right-hand man. What's the difference in those responsibilities, do you have a sense? Tom looks at me with a very long smile, shaking his head ever so slightly. I just do what I do. <laughs> Together, the two coordinated the pre-policing of Tent City. Abdul set up a drunk patrol of volunteers with radios keeping an eye on who was getting drunk or high. This allowed them to be proactive and avoid conflict if someone became noisy or rowdy. They also developed a policy of body-swapping troublemakers, moving them from one location to the other when either Tom or Abdul felt that they were losing control of a resident, but the transgressions didn't quite rise to the level of kicking someone out. In terms of disposition, they essentially functioned as a sort of classic pre-good cop, pre-bad cop. While Tom was less inclined to use force, Abdul wasn't shy to admit that on a few occasions he'd resorted to violence to enforce the rules. 
According to Mark Joshua, he viewed his beating of one particularly violent resident as a watershed moment in asserting his and Tom's authority. He claimed to have acted for the good and on behalf of the community by enforcing rules decided upon collectively, and an account of the weekly house meeting concurs. I wasn't running the viaduct, Abdul would repeat. They were running the viaduct. So how many people do you think that you've seen get housed? Have you got any numbers in your head? How many people have passed through Uptown Tent City? We had, since the time I came here from 16, 2016 to now, we had close to, yeah, on Lawrence, we had close to 50, 60 people that already get housed. That's Lawrence. And then Wilson, how many at Wilson? About the same at Wilson. Tom's support fluctuated over time as residents came and went. The fact that he wasn't likely to resort to violence made his position of leadership vulnerable to the whims of a changing population. The U Chicago paper describes a particularly difficult challenge to his authority. He claimed a vocal minority of Lawrence residents confronted him over the storage tent he controlled. They didn't trust him to distribute communal resources equitably and accused him of hoarding. He accused his dissenters of wanting to sell those resources for their own drug habit. Tom caved to the pressure and opened up the communal tent, only for it to be looted, he claimed. Perishables had to be thrown out after they left the tent's coolers. Tom would later rent a room at the nearby Wilson Men's Hotel to use as a locked storage space until the hotel closed for renovations in 2019. The hotel was being turned into an apartment complex. Living under the bridges was never easy. There was dripping water and exposed wires, possibly still alive. One time, a chunk of concrete fell from the highway above, miraculously landing in the middle of three tents. Uptown Tent City also faced harassment from commuters. In the early morning hours, drivers would pass through, presumably on their way to work, and lay on the car horn. One resident told DNA Info, people would yell, wake the f up and burn rubber out of here. The greatest concern was probably fire. Multiple fires have broken out at encampments across the city over the years. In 2020, Block Club Chicago reported someone set fire to three encampments in a single day. But Tom has fire extinguishers and a system. The real threat is the ammo a fire gives an encampment's detractors. New attend two fires in as many months at an uptown tent city. Both times propane tanks residents were using to keep warm exploded. No one was hurt. A few months before we talked to Tom, a fire ripped through Uptown Tent City, taking out six tents. Luckily, it only resulted in damaged property, but Tent City hasn't heard the last of it. Instead, the fire kicked off Tom's most recent PR battle. One he seems to be losing. CBS 2's Marissa Perlman has more on the complicated battle. It's like a community down here. We help everybody. Tom Gordon is the self-proclaimed mayor of the Uptown homeless community. He says, here, your family. You need a tent, I got you. You need a sleeping bag, I got you. Need blankets. Every time we got a fire, government, oh, there was an explosion down there. Not one can blew up down here. We never had a propane fire down here. The last two fires we had down here, they used hand sanitizer to burn the tents. <laughs> no propane gas was used. No explosion was down here ever. They're talking about, well, you can't have propane. Why? I know how dangerous it is. If, it, if one of those cans blow, 
It'll blow up the entire bridge. <laughs> I mean, those big white cans of propane gas, if one blows, you're gonna have shrapnel everywhere. You're gonna have no bridge, especially when I got 21 cans down there. We're very careful. We got fire extinguishers and everything, so nine times out of 10, we have the fire out before the fire department comes. Except for the hand sanitizer. That got me, that fire was just too hot. What what happened with the hand sanitizer? It just accidentally Somebody caught Somebody poured it on a tent and set the tent on fire. Who, who did that, an encampment person or a person from outside? No, it was an encampment person. He got mad at the people that he were his neighbors and he didn't want them there anymore. He set one ton on fire and the whole side went. Wow. Every ton on that one side went. I had one tent that was left. That's, that's what that's what the uh, alderman was saying, no propane. That's when he started saying no yeah. propane, okay. But it was hand sanitizer, not propane that right. started the fire. Yep. But it don't matter. Uptown alderperson James Kappelman was pushing for a city ordinance that would make donating propane to an encampment a finable offense. Tom gets nearly all of his tents and fuel from a wealthy benefactor he connected with over the years. Tom felt targeted. They're talking about, well, if you get propane down there, we're going to give you a, a citation. Give me the ticket. Any of my people get a ticket down there, I'll take it. I'll take it to the coalition and we'll sue the shit out of the city. We have a right to be heated just like anyone else. It doesn't matter if you're in a tent or a cardboard box. A lot of people have housing. They end up back out here because they don't know how to keep it. Why? I don't know. Um, it could be following rules. Maybe they just can't handle it because they haven't been inside for a long time or whatever the case. Or it could be a mental problem. I don't know. A lot of people do have mental problems out here. Or are they missing the community of the encampment? They, that's a possibility. How do you feel now that you're in housing? Are there aspects of living in the encampment that you miss? No. <laughs> My friends, but I can always come back anytime I want. Yeah, it's nice. They're to trying to get to me to come back because we got a bad winter coming. I couldn't help but wonder what all of this meant for the new encampment in my old backyard. What do you think will happen with the encampment in Tui Park going forward? Do you foresee a day where that encampment no longer is there? What, what's the long-term plan? Um, yes, I mean, the plan is to house people. 49th Ward Alderperson Maria Haddon. We shouldn't have the encampment there in particular. It's cold. <laughs> There's one porta potty that's going to go away at the end of the year, most likely, because the park district will stop paying for it at the end of the year. The city, nor the park district, they don't support encampments, right? And so we had to fight to get that porta potty. <laughs> they didn't provide one all last year. Um, I don't know if you guys know that, but like all last all last summer, we tried to get porta potties for people. The park district wouldn't allow it. And so even on the basic level of how are we providing kind of a safe and sanitary environment, there's not a system or a support network or an interest um, in supporting that. And the park district, of course, is not in the business of housing people, as they remind us. Um, during meetings, they are not supposed to have um, people staying overnight. They're not equipped for it, whether it be from the sanitation side or the security side or the management side. They don't do any of the social services or outreach, and it's not what they're looking to continue to accommodate. 
What's driving the increase in homelessness right now? The pandemic, because a lot of people lost their jobs. And now you're kicking people out because they have no jobs. They got no way to pay their rent, so they're evicting them. That's why we're getting all these people in the park. Well, I think it's pretty clear, right? Like, there were a lot of protections, right, when we were in the shutdown. The impact of the worst parts of the pandemic are mm-hmm. still are still reverberating. Um, and rents have gone up, right? And housing protections are gone. Um, so there, there's a lot happening. So it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. We're only seeing the top, but not everything underneath. Yeah, or even if you want to think of it as like a tsunami, right, from an earthquake, right? There's a really significant acute kind of thing. Um, and then and then there's a delay and another and another wave of crisis, right? Wow. Like today, for instance, is a real good day, right? Yeah. Now, uh, you know as well as I know it's going to get cold. But as, as time goes on, do you think there'll be fewer or more people in the encampment? Here, we'll have a lot more people coming to the camp. Oh, really? As it gets colder? As it gets colder, I have a lot more people on there than During the summer and fall, Uptown Tent City's residents had taken advantage of the extra space that good weather allowed them and had left the bridges to spread throughout the park. At the time of our interview, there were just a couple of tents under the Lawrence Viaduct. Right now, Tom's focus is convincing everybody to come back under the safety of the overpass before it's too late. We got snow coming this winter. If it's a heavy snow, you can kiss your tent goodbye. It's going to be hard to get tents in the wintertime. That's why we're trying to get them now, extra tents, just in case. In case someone needs it, in case their tent messes up. With a heavy snow, it'll crush that tent. Can you give us a sense of what it's like to be out here in the winter? It's cold. (laughs) It's very cold. You said that a lot of people are getting housing. are there people living in the encampments who have been there for a long time who aren't interested in, in housing? And if people are getting housing, like why do they continue to be in the same spots? Is there something that kind of holds those communities together? I mean, we have certain people out here that have housing, but they come out here to do their drugs. Okay, we don't have a problem with it, just as long as it doesn't mess us up. You can party all you want in your tent. But when you leave, take all yourself with you. So one of the questions I'm asking throughout the story, though, is, I mean, what do we each owe each other? I mean, what does the city owe people who are sitting around doing drugs when they potentially have housing and they're out in the street and they're visible? They need some kind of help. That's what they need. They need to put them in a program so they can get that help and get off those drugs. Maybe they don't want to be off drugs. They want to continue using they're going to end up staying on the street because they don't want housing either. But what do we owe them? I mean, people see them. Part of it is they don't want to see people in tents in their fancy neighborhood. But the other part of it is saying, oh my God, it's winter coming. I can't consciously see these people freezing to death. I mean, so it's what do we owe them and what do they owe us? Kind of what's the, what's the civic responsibility going back and forth here? I'm not going to let anybody preach out here. 
You don't want a house, and that's fine with me. I'll get you a heater, I'll get you gas, I'll get you what you need to stay warm. In the summertime, I'll make sure you don't dehydrate. I'll make sure you got plenty of water. It gets hot out here in the summer, pretty hot. But it gets freezing cold because we're right here by the lake. So yeah, I'm not gonna have, nobody's died out here since I came out here with the heaters, propane gas. Dewey Park Tent City's first media moment came in September, a few weeks after the park swelled to 41 tents. Maria Haddon released a newsletter to address the situation. On September 25th, a notice was posted on the door of the Tui Park Fieldhouse, stating that all park programming and services were being moved to Pottawatomie Park until further notice. I was not notified or consulted about this decision. The park district and the city have been promising a strategy and plan for how to best care for and provide services to people experiencing homelessness and ensure that the parks are available and safe for recreation for everyone. But it's been over a year, and they have yet to share or act upon that plan. As we approach another winter, I'm worried about how we're going to house everyone living unsheltered in the park, and about the future of Tui Park. We need a plan from the city and the park district. She went on to announce a community meeting a few weeks later, and that she expected the park district to present a plan. Do you work with the people in Tui Park? We're going to. Okay. We haven't started yet, but we're going to. While Alderperson Haddon is dedicating herself to finding everyone in Tui Park housing before winter, Tom is preparing to make sure that they have everything they need to stay, just in case that housing doesn't come through. The first time I saw Tui Park Tent City for myself was during its boom phase in 2022, and things were getting weird. I was on my way to one of the first in-person family gatherings since the pandemic had me recording the final narration for season one of this podcast from Location, a makeshift recording studio in my apartment bedroom. My mom still lives in the condo near the park where I grew up, so when I arrived, I decided to walk the extra block to see Tent City for myself. For one thing, I could already hear it. Something that sounded like a protest coming from the direction of Tui Park. A booming, animated voice pumped through a sound system. As I got closer, I could see through rows of tents what was making the noise. On the far side of the park, someone had set up a set of speakers. The big PA system kind you see at live events, sitting on stands on either side of a seemingly bare folding table. Behind it, a large man in a baseball cap and a black t-shirt was delivering what I could now make out was an animated sermon. The rest of the park was empty besides the tents themselves. If any of the residents of Tent City were present, they were either waiting out the park preacher from inside their tents, or had made plans to visit quieter parts of the city. We all have a right to housing and shelter and sometimes in the complexity of what we experience, and again, we see this with Tui Park, in a resource-scarce world, we end up fighting over these things, right? 49th Ward Alderperson Maria Haddon. We have people who are unsheltered and unhoused and need a safe place to stay, so they're set up at Tui Park. We also have a bunch of urban dwellers here in the city, um, many without yards or personal space, who want a place to recreate um, and a playground for their kids. And then right across the street, I've got a sixth through 12th grade school, which like almost every school in Rogers Park doesn't have its own green space. 
and um, they need a space for their athletics and recreation. So in a, in a resource scarce environment um, where there just doesn't seem to be enough space to go around, it creates tensions, right? Whether we're talking houses, apartments, shelters, or tents, one thing is still true. It's always only ever been about location, location, location. Next time on Where I Stay. I'll paint you a picture. The first thing I'm going to do as your next 49th Ward Alder person is to house every single person in the Tui Park tent encampments. There was a flyer that was posted in the park that announced uh, Maria Haddon was having the people living in this encampment evicted in five days. The flyers also claimed they were from Bill Morton, the president of the Rogers Park Chamber of Commerce, who was running against Haddon. Uh, Maria Haddon even had to go down to Tui Park to let members of the community know that this was a scam. Would we call this sabotage? Um, I wouldn't call it sabotage. I mean, it's, it's a political maneuvering, right? Where I Stay is produced by Jesse Batten with Suzanne Haney, A. Allen, Kiana Drummond, and Keith Hardiman. Additional editing by Sheila Solomon, Julie Youngquist, and Amanda Jones. Music by Andrew Bird, Andy Mitrin, and Jeremy Blake. A special thank you to Block Club Chicago, ProPublica, the Chicago Tribune, and CityCast Chicago, who broke many of the stories touched on throughout the series. Especially Mick Dumkey and Joe Ward, whose coverage of the 49th Ward is both thorough and invaluable. If you enjoy the show, we'd appreciate it if you take a second to leave a rating, write a review, or recommend it to a friend. To find out more about where I stay, visit streetwise.org. Until next time, thank you for listening. Housing for those people, and we need to return the park back to the community. Period. Those people living in the park are part of the community. We all saw the rules. We 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 saw the rules